Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 72 movies, one cage. Today's episode, Raising Arizona from 1987, directed by Joel Cohen, written by both Cohen brothers, starring Nick Cage, of course, <laughs> Holly Hunter, John Goodman, William Forsythe. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Manzi. I'm the other host, Joey Lewandowski, and right off the bat, I, I think I mentioned this at the end of the last episode, Raising Arizona is my favorite Nicolas Cage movie. I absolutely love this movie. It's the first time in Cage Club so far that as soon as the movie ended, I just wanted to write my review, I just wanted to get my thoughts out there, and I just started watching the movie again while I was writing the review. It's so perfect from start to finish. It's one of the few examples... A lot of people tend to brush him off or dismiss him too too quickly, that he is always crazy, that he's not a good actor. And there's a handful of movies that I always refer people to that say, hey, you know, he's, in spite of whatever your preconceived notions of him are, there are movies where he's, like, objectively amazing, and I feel like this is one of them. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And this, to me, was like an Oscar award-winning performance, uh, and everyone's great in this film, but he is especially natural in this role, and just inhabits this character so perfectly you know it's just amazing i love it is it my favorite cage performance maybe i haven't really thought that hard about it but it's definitely you know one of my favorite movies i i agree i think it's one of the few perfect films out there i mean everything is just so tight and it flows so well and it's so original and unlike well it's it's like stuff now because it's become such an influence on filmmakers of our day for for a lot of different reasons it seems like the late 80s early 90s were a real sort of turning point in terms of movies especially in terms of like independent movies mm-hmm. you know between Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and stuff like that and it seems like and maybe it's just the sort of the time period but I feel like the people who grew up on these movies in today, in 2015, were sort of seeing the, the payback and seeing how influential these movies are on multiple levels. Absolutely. Um, you know, Coen Brothers are highly influential, and they, they make such varied films, right? Like, they make serious films, they make comedies, and they make them all so well. They influence different filmmakers in different ways, and I definitely was watching this and saying, oh, you know, I see, I see maybe where Edgar Wright is very influenced by, you know, the opening of this film for his style. I feel like I can't praise it enough. Uh, you mentioned earlier that it feels like an Oscar-winning performance for Cage. Unfortunately, this film was never nominated for any real major awards the awards it was nominated for, the Young Artist Awards and the American Comedy Awards, it did not win. But this is a movie where it's it's really, like, everybody is at the top of their game. It's a combination of what feels like a really, really tremendous script and perfect casting where everybody just fits their role exactly how they're supposed to be. Yeah, and I also think it has something to do with... You know, the way it's directed, it's directed as a comedy, but this story could easily be a straight up crime thriller as well. And I think since it's in that genre, the way it's played is what makes it so hilarious and, you know, gives it its comedic edge. I, I took a film class in high school and I was just introduced to all these different movies, and Raising Arizona is one of them. And I really think that this was the first time that I ever saw a Nicolas Cage movie. And so our teacher showed us Raising Arizona and introduced the concept of a black comedy. And he said that this is one of the funniest movies you'll ever see, but it's also like one of the darkest movies you'll ever see. Because, I mean, if you describe the plot to someone, a barren couple decides to steal a baby from the wealthiest family in town. The the husband's cellmates, prison mates, decide to steal the baby back to win money. Like, it seems like the most depressing, <laughs> It sounds darkest... like Ag- Agatha Christie, almost. <laughs> it's like, ransom the baby for money, or, you know, things like that. Just like I mentioned with Peggy Sue Got Married, that it was the first cage role in capital letters, the first sort of crazy cage. It seems like everybody in this movie has that kind of role. Like, everybody's over the top. Everybody's so heightened. And I think that's why it works, because everything about it is just amplified, because it is a ridiculous story. Because everybody's so into what they're doing and so on point, it all just sort of works. Like, there's no normal. Everything is just heightened in every sense of the word. Yeah, in a lot of aspects, it's almost um, a, like a live-action cartoon. You know, <laughs> many things happen that defy um, the nature of physics. So I think what that does is it helps take the edge off, and you know, it takes the 
dark story and instead of making it dangerous it makes it more preposterous and you know you see a baby in danger and you're and you're more willing to laugh because you know you know for the most part it's you know it's a comedy so things are going to be okay but they're able to use these dangerous situations and things like that and flip them to their advantage and, and make them funny instead of tense you're really never worried about that baby even though he's being left on top of cars he's being he's involved in shootouts and chases he's surrounded by criminals pretty much all movie <laughs> but he's never really in danger because it's not the kind of movie that raising arizona is so this movie basically opens up with a 10 minute montage uh, something that up until this point i'd never seen uh, you kind of see this more often where a long scene might play out you know you see it in james bond where a scene might play out and then the titles come up but this was very new to me especially at the time and you still don't see it very often in the film's first 10 minutes we really go from cage as criminal holly hunter as correctional officer on opposite sides of the law to him basically you know just falling in love with her from the sight of her and seeing that her relationship isn't working out to them getting together interspliced each time as Cage gets released (laughs) and goes back to prison for the same kind of crime, robbing a convenience store. In that same 10 minutes, you see him finally, you know, make good and get released once and for all. They get married. They fall in love. You find out that she can't have children. And then you find out on the news that the, the wealthiest family in town, the Arizonas, just had quintuplets, which is way too many babies for one family. And they decide to steal one of these babies. It's so much information, and you know so much about these characters, and you know these characters so well, and you're 11 minutes into the movie, and it's just this perfect preamble to a movie that the whole movie just sort of feels like that. It's always, what's the next thing, what's the next thing, what's the next thing? The the pace is perfect from start to finish. It really hits the ground running with the combination of the music, the voiceover, you know the fast cutting the you know the repetitive nature of <laughs> it really sets up his you know habitual criminal nature of the movie that's going to keep coming up he falls in love with the guard you know because he's there so often he sees her sort of go through a bad relationship uh, i just love it too and i just love the idea of a cop and a criminal getting married and falling in love and trying to start a family like that would have made a good movie in and of itself if they didn't end up plotting to steal a baby like that's just the icing on top of it but um i love the dynamic that's set up here it's terrific it really is and i think the cop and the criminal falling in love i think that's really the most interesting part of the movie because sort of tracking edwina Ed, played by Holly Hunter, tracking her motivation, you know, journey basically from upstanding citizen to criminal is fascinating. Like, she is on, she's firmly on one side of the law, over the course of the movie, helps her husband steal a baby, or or convinces her husband to steal a baby, helps him escape after a a robbery mid-movie, and she does all these things that sort of goes against who she is, but it all sort of makes sense in terms of her character development, her character evolution, who she is and what she wants. Right. First and foremost, she wants to be a mother. She wants to have a baby. She says she's got too much love, right? She needs to, like, sh- we need to share share the love. Cage, like, is wearing off on her or something. I mean, she's barren, right? So it's almost as if she feels betrayed by nature, you know? Like, the laws of yeah. nature are sort of broken, so she's going to break the law and sort of make things right in her eyes, you know, and I think that's, uh, in a way, part of her justification, you know, so she's in heavy denial for the rest, for most of the rest of the film, because as long as she has a baby and she's trying to form her family, like, she's happy, and that's what she wants. It's really that the one thing she wants, she can't have, and so because she can't have it, she's going to do whatever it takes, legal or otherwise, you know, against nature or otherwise, to get that thing that she wants. Yeah. So they're off to steal a baby. They're off to, they're off to steal a baby. And what I love about this movie, and it's sort of the, the type of thing that happens from start to finish, is that they have the five babies, and then like Barry, Larry, Harry... <laughs> What's the fourth one? It's another one that's just like that. And then there's Nathan Jr. And they just so happen to steal Nathan Jr. Like the one that makes the least sense for them to steal 
is of course the one that they get. Yeah, it's just I mean that's the whole punchline, right? It, the whole yeah. joke is like that, you know it's impossible to tell them apart, and you know he's like I think I got Nathan Jr. and then uh, it turns out yeah they did indeed like steal the one baby that doesn't doesn't have the rhyming scheme. It's such a perfect nice little character touch and just sort of attention paid to the script. Everything about it, it's just like the perfect joke, the perfect decision. It's really, I mean, I, I don't want to keep saying it, but it's just like a flawless, perfect script. Yeah, the coincidences don't feel like coincidence. I think that's what helps is, you know, just the, the fact that they take the baby Nathan Jr., right? I mean, it it could have felt forced. It could have done all these things. But since it's just a punchline and it also ends up being sort of, you know, integral to the plot because, you know, it's his father, Nathan Sr., right? It's his namesake. So, like, he's going to be integral in trying to get this kid back. He might be more adamant about it. It's a nice touch because it plays on more than just a punchline. And that scene where they actually do go to steal the baby is worth talking about because it has baby's eye view camera angles. Yeah, there's lots of great camera angles and camera work in this movie and you know, point of view shots. And <laughs> Later on, we get a shot of the leg point of view when he's being thrown around the trailer park. Nicolas Cage sneaks into the Arizona's house and he walks into the baby's room and there are five babies just sitting in the crib and it's a comedy of errors as he's trying to... It feels like he doesn't really want to. I do think that he is like a fully sort of reformed criminal because he doesn't really feel like he wants to steal a baby. And he actually leaves the house without having stolen a baby and then gets yelled at by Ed to go back in there and get her a baby. Yeah, in the opening, we even find out he has a job, right? He's got a job at a factory and everything too. So you're right. It does sort of feel like eh, maybe he, you know, there's got to be another way and it's... Ed, that's like, no, we're not leaving without a baby. <laughs> and he goes back up in there, and he steals Nathan Jr., and he comes down, and it leads to my favorite moment in the movie, Ed holding the baby, the way that she sobs the line. <laughs> I love him so much. I know you do, honey. I love him so much. I know you do. Like, it's everything, like, it's the perfect culmination of everything she's wanted. Nature took this away from her, but all it took was her husband putting a ladder up to a house and going up and scooping up a baby, and now she is complete. Yeah, I I especially like Nathan Jr.'s homecoming when they have, like, the record on and they prop him up on the couch and they're looking at him. And then uh, Nick Cage turns to his wife and he goes, we got ourselves a family. What? Are you kidding? We got us a family here. That line to me is just like his moment, just like she had in the car. And then they take that picture. They take like the family photo. Yeah. Like that. And um, yeah, and I was just thinking like, oh, okay, evidence. But they're not even considering the idea of getting caught. I mean, they do kind of live out in the middle of nowhere. And it was sort of a fly by the seat of their pants plan, I suppose. But yeah, it never even comes across their mind like anything aside from we just as long as we got the kid, they didn't think past that. No, they're, they're so singularly focused on becoming this complete family unit, nothing else really matters anymore. They're not concerned with the repercussions of their actions. They're not concerned with anybody finding out. They don't have an alibi, or they don't have their story straight. Like, people ask them all the time what the baby... Like, the easiest questions in the world. Like, what's the baby's name? You know, how did you get a baby so fast? Like, we wanted to adopt a baby. We were told we have to wait five years. They have none of their story lined up. <laughs> but it doesn't matter, because they, they have their baby. That's all they want. They're the family. Like it's it's that's it. And the the people around them are pretty self centered too. So they start asking questions and then either like just accept their response or don't even wait to hear the response until they continue talking. <laughs> when his buddies break out of jail and and like come in the middle of the night and sort of hold up there and they're asking questions about the baby, they're just like idiots. So they believe pretty much anything they say. They're not even. They're almost just being polite. They're so not on the same page that they're they're outsmarted by these couple of dimwit ex-cons who just who broke out of jail. Do they ever allude to how they broke out of jail? We just see them actually escape. Do, I mean, do we ever do we ever know how they actually got out of jail? I think they just tunneled out of jail because John John Goodman who just he climbed there's that one scene where he climbs out of the hole and and pulls yeah. his brother up by his leg. I don't know. I think it's just supposed to be sort of the old-fashioned prison break, you know, explanation. 
it's, it's kind of a Shawshank situation. Yeah, sort of a, a Shawshank situation. They used uh, spoons to tunnel out. They're not the only ones to sort of outsmart or figure out like what's going on. You know, like Ed and High aren't trying to be very <laughs> sneaky about any of this. Like they're very open and very out, and they you know they're not even really aware that they're doing anything necessarily wrong they feel totally justified like the entire time when his foreman comes over with his wife and brings all their kids and you sort of see like he gets a glimpse of one of his possible futures like a hell on earth of just all these terrible kids running around his place you know the the wife of his foreman is asking all the questions about like have you gotten to see a doctor have you done this and that that like everybody's just like so excited about this baby like no one's even thinking that it might be um the stolen kid but those two eventually like as dumb as they are come to the conclusion that they did steal the baby yeah it's like the mcdonough's had you know a 10-step plan to like successfully getting away from the baby where step one was steal the baby, and that's the only step that they ever actually, like, planned out. Yeah. All right, so the night that they kidnap Nathan Jr., High has a vision. Well, he calls it a vision. We see it somewhat as a dream, and I'm not quite sure if he is actually seeing what's happening. I mean, he could have a touch of the clairvoyance to him. Whatever he actually sees, whether what we see on screen is what he sees in his dream, it's this, <laughs> basically, it's an, it's an unstoppable force that's coming to get the kid back. And you don't find out until after the dream's over that it's this vigilante, essentially, <laughs> that Nathan Arizona hired to find his missing child. And he looks like he's straight out of Mad Max. Right, like this guy yeah. came <laughs> right off a of Fury Road or something like that, and into this movie. Mad Max being pretty big at the time, you know, I'm pretty sure the Thunderdome was released around the same time as Raising Arizona, so it could have been a topical joke on their part. But it works so perfectly well because it's supposed to represent like this force of nature, you know. That night I had a dream. I drifted off thinking about happiness, birth, and new life but now I was haunted by a vision of he was horrible a lone biker in the apocalypse a man with all the powers of hell at his command he could turn the day into night and laid the waste to everything in his path It was especially hard on the little things, the helpless and the gentle creatures. He left a scorched earth in his wake, befouled on even the sweet desert breeze that whipped across his brow. I didn't know where he came from or why. I know if he was dreaming or vision. But I feared that I myself had unleashed him. God, just the way that they shoot it with the effects and everything, you know, it's just so stylized and just marvelous. And it's really another terrific character introduction because really the first thing we see this guy do, who's all in leather riding a motorcycle down the, a desert highway, is he's just killing every wild animal, like a bunny rat, like things that, not like actual, like evil intent animals, just... The, the most innocent of nature's creatures, murdering them, like, with grenades. <laughs> like, it's... He's so brutal and relentless and over-the-top that even if you hadn't done something wrong and had a dream like that, it would be really terrifying and off-putting. And the dream ends with this awesome point of view that goes from pretty far back, and, right, it, like, it's almost like it reminded me of Evil Dead. It's like the Deadite camera, where it just goes, like, goes and goes, and it goes, like, over a car in a driveway, and you're in the uh, Arizona house, and it goes, like, up the ladder that they stole the baby with, yeah. and into the bedroom window, and into the mouth of the screaming mother that discovered that the baby was stolen. Like, it was just, like, amazing. It's, it's shots like these that would be much easier to do today, you know, all the, the technologies and abilities of computers, but back then, in 1987, I'm sure that there were some technological advances that would enable this kind of thing, but it's it's really just a testament to how well, like how creative and how good of filmmakers the Coen brothers are to execute something like this so far ahead of 
basically the rest of Hollywood. Yeah, and they do it often in this movie. It's part of the visual style. Like you mentioned, all the, the point of views that we get a lot. You know, it feels like a first-person shooter sometimes. They cut to that. Like, that really is being done a lot now. You know, you see shots like that in Kingsman Secret Service and stuff. Yeah. But, like, they were doing this in 87. You know, they're doing it in, like, this comedy, you know, right? It's not like a Jason Bourne film or anything. And, like, they're just using, like, all these different visual styles that, that have been established over the years to get their points across to say, okay, this scene is supposed to sort of parody a horror movie. This scene is supposed to sort of parody like a love a love story movie. And they use, you know, almost like you kind of catch and kill Bill, how he uses different cinematic styles at different yep. parts to tell his story. It's definitely, like, without a doubt, the most stylishly filmed movie so far in Cage Club. And I, I, I can't imagine we'll find too many more that sort of approach this level. So we had like Uncle Francis and do his three movies and he sort of had his own thing. Yeah. But they weren't like stylish in a way that this is. Or maybe well, he's maybe always stylish been is the wrong and experimental too, but very mainstream experimental, so it doesn't always, you know, ride off the rails as much. You could just tell from the movies we've watched like just how much better the Coen brothers are at, at filmmaking. I mean, they just have better sense of how to where to put the camera you know uh, what's funny their sense of timing things like, i'm not saying the movies we watched were bad or anything like that i'm just saying like we've we've approached a whole nother level here which is made all the more impressive by the fact that their first movie blood simple came out just three years before this like they basically entered the game like we were talking about with cage as an actor they just entered the game like in peak form like they just knew what they were doing and they just hit the ground running yeah so this sort of merging of Cage and Cohen's it just it's like serendipitous you know and I feel especially at this moment in their careers after this movie they will all become pretty much uh, big deals you know all their movies from now on will be tracked you know their careers will be watched and most of the stuff that they do from now on will be seen and a lot of it is due to this movie so Cage's dream essentially ends the first act of the movie and the second act of the movie is really what happens before the the final sort of conflict, um, or before it's it's sort of like a in terms of the McDonough's point of view at least a little bit of a slower story. Like the first act, they had a whole lot to do. They went and they went to steal a baby. The second act, they just sort of have some friends over. Yeah, the second act is uh, family life, right? It's family yeah. life on on both fronts in terms of the McDonough's and also the Arizonas and how how much both of their lives have changed by this one single event. Yeah, Nathan Sr. puts the word out, you know, the kid's missing $25,000 reward. Hi and Ed are trying to just live a normal family life, and, and he has his boss over for the day. But it turns, it, it quickly turns out that his boss has other intentions. <laughs> they bring over their five children, who were absolute monsters, but it, it sort of doesn't deter the McDonough's from wanting this kid still. In spite of how horrific all these kids are, you know, running around squirting people with water guns, uh, breaking things, dropping things, just causing all sorts of trouble, eating entire, like, jello cakes with, like, sc- scooping with their hands. The McDonald's still are in love with this baby. Like, it doesn't sort of change things. This is, like, a high is sort of seeing, like, a dark version of what might possibly happen to him. Like, he may wake up one day and have a litter of kids that are just terrible and a house that's falling apart and have turned into, like, a complete dick and stuff. And they actually, you know, he he tries to have, like, that heart-to-heart with Glenn, and he's just like, you know... um, there's just you know what happens when all the excitement is sucked out of your life you know you're you're you got your wife you got your kid you got your job you you know you're on your routine you every day is the same like how how do you you know what do you do for fun now like and uh, Glenn has some pretty interesting suggestions yeah what they do for fun now is that they're swingers yeah. and he he starts it up by saying dot thinks you're pretty cute and Nick Cage like, doesn't really know how to react to that cuz like how do you react to a man telling you that his wife thinks you're attractive. And then his boss says, and you know, I I think Ed's pretty good looking too. And then just like jumps right into the hard sell of, hey, we're swingers, like let's do this. (laughs) And Nick Cage just doesn't even give it like a second thought, just winds up and clocks his boss. 
Yeah, just the, the he says it himself later. He's like, that's what a man, a true man would do, you know. I mean, he's just all sort of impulse and instinct, and just you know, like you don't talk about his woman like that whatsoever. Like very cool, very old fashioned. And at the same time, while this is all happening, we're showing the Arizona's dealing with the aftermath of the stolen baby, and the the cops coming over, and how much of it. Basically, it seems just like an inconvenience to Nathan Arizona. Like he doesn't seem nearly as heartbroken about it as his wife is. Yeah, and then he's got the FBI and the police there, and no one can sort of take charge of the situation. <laughs> and I just love the ineptitude of authority in this movie. You know, I don't know if that's one of the themes or anything, but you know, you have Ed who sort of quits the force and becomes a criminal, and then you have this baby who's stolen, which is like national news, and you know the FBI can't even agree with the local cop as to like what the baby was wearing when he was when he was kidnapped. Obviously, a diaper. You know what a re- ridiculous question to begin with. I didn't really put that together, or I didn't think about that while I was watching it. The ineptitude of the police, but I do think that that's definitely a, an easy thing to track through this movie because really, I think in the next scene or really shortly thereafter we have the greatest chase scene in any movie ever where two cops are just trying to track down Nicolas Cage and firing so many bullets with no regard for any other human life or any other property damage or anything. They just want to get their guy. And, like, it's just... And they don't. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's once again, you know, whether you're talking about Ed's fall from grace or the FBI and the police complete inability to figure out how to look for clues as to where Nathan Jr. went or just these cops chasing Nicolas Cage around holding a pack of diapers they're not very good at their jobs yeah the criminals you know you know you just you see how stupid they are and they're getting away with it they're smarter than the cops like it just you know goes to say something about that but i do really want to talk about that chase yeah. scene because i do feel like it's the best it's one of the best chase scenes. I mean, we just had, in a year where one of the the most entertaining movies is almost literally a two-hour chase scene, this, I think, sort of, like, in a weird way, like, stacks up right against Mad Max because it's, it's, it's just as over-the-top in a different way, but it's just as over-the-top as Mad Max in that you have cops chasing Cage, dogs chasing Cage, Holly Hunter steering away from him and then coming back to him. There's so much going on. And in a 94-minute movie, this is probably close to 10 minutes in the middle of the movie. It's just this epic, long chase scene. It is uh, from 43 minutes to 50 minutes, and it covers so much territory. You know, it's just so creative, and it just keeps going, and there's so many gags in it. You know, he, he starts off by robbing the convenience store. He freaks out because he realizes that he needs a lot more money than he has if he's going to keep up with the expenses of this baby. And so they go to a convenience store to buy diapers, but he has the idea to steal the diapers and rob the convenience store, which sets off this really crazy chain of events. And the clerk ends up having a huge pistol behind the counter, and he starts shooting at Cage first. Like, Cage runs out. Ed pulls away in the car because she doesn't want to be part of this. The clerk starts blasting at Cage. The cops show up, and one of the cops is sitting out the window already, shooting at Nick Cage like, yeah. as they're coming down the street. The, the kid behind the counter is basically Dirty Harry with the size of the heat that yeah. he's packing. And he looks like um, Beavis. He does, he does look like Beavis. He looks like the stereotypical 80s convenience store kid. It just works for this movie. I think, the, I think it is sort of important to point out that as much of a degenerate as Nicolas Cage's character is, he's never aggressive in a weird way. Like, he... They make, a, they make a point early in the movie when he's being released one of his times from jail that even though he had a gun in the robbery, he never used live ammunition. So he never wants to hurt people. He just, like, this is the only way that he knows that he can, he can make money. And it never works out for him. But this is the only way he knows or he thinks he can get the money he needs to sort of provide the people around him the life that they want to live. Yeah, he's a terrible crook, but like you said, like it's the way maybe it's the way he was raised or whatever, but it is it's all he knows what to do. Like he knows as much as there's money in that register and if I put a gun in the guy's face, he'll give it to me, you know? It's as simple as that. And I think it's that it's it's just that easy that is so alluring to him and he's almost like addicted to 
robbing stop and shops or you know little um 7-elevens because that's all he keeps getting busted for in the beginning and you know that's when he has his relapse later in the film i think it's because you know he has that conversation where he punches glenn in the face but glenn had a point about excitement disappearing from your life and this is exciting to him you know this really gets his blood boiling and rushing and gives him a rush and you know makes him feel like he's alive just like doing these petty crimes and even though Ed is firmly against it. She doesn't want to see him relapse. It's it's sort of crazy how quickly she comes around. Like, in the middle of this chase scene, she has a cha- change of heart. I guess I think it's because, probably, they're a family now, and she's not going to leave him behind. And she changes her mind from leaving him for the cops to find to going and basically saving his life and keeping him out of jail. I was wondering about that, but I just figured she's trying to make it work, right? I mean, if Nathan, Nathan Jr. can't grow up without a father, so he's the only one they got. She's going to go pick him up, and she has a real... They have, like, a fight in the car after she picks him up, right? She clocks him in the face, and he, he has that great cross-eyed look that, like, I it is burned into my brain because it's just such a wonderful piece of physical comedy. So she is mad, and, you know, she's upset, but I think it's more like for the greater good of the child at this point. It's def- definitely testing their limits, though, and Cage does realize that he screwed up pretty bad that time. And You know, they get home, and prison buddies are still there, and, and she just goes, like, ballistic on them. <laughs> yeah, she, she is not a fan of them being around at all, let alone, you know, staying there for multiple nights, multiple days. They don't really give us a clear sense of the time frame for how long they're there, but they're there, they've way outstayed their welcome. Yeah, they made themselves at home within the first five minutes of being there. <laughs> it's like they've lived there for a month, and I only think they've been there for about a day or two. Before they leave and before they get on with their life, whatever life it's going to be running away from the cops, they put two and two together and realize that this baby that just happened to show up out of nowhere is the missing Arizona baby. Ed goes to town to look for a doctor, and then Glenn shows up, and he figured it out, right? He's like, right, right. you stole the baby, and then he's like, he does the funniest thing. He goes, we were going to turn you in, but uh, my wife wants another one because ours are too big to cuddle. I was like, that is such an awesome twist, you know? It's like everybody just wants this baby. Like, no one is willing to do the right thing to it. Like, And then... Um, He's like yelling at it, yelling at at high, and, oh, right, and right, 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 right. him inside, and he walks back in, and they like got the baby. What follows? I mean, this movie is just action packed. It's crazy. It's action packed, and what follows is like my the best fight. Oh my god, this is the best fight, like almost ever. I mean, it's definitely the best trailer fight. It gives the Kill Bill trailer fight. That's the only other trailer fight that I can think of that even comes close. Like it's. You would think that, like, it's just, it's so... I don't even have words. It's just great. I mean, the trailer... I mean, the whole joke is that it's too small to fight in. So every time John Goodman goes to throw a punch, he's, like, putting his arm through a window or through a wall. And every time that Nicolas Cage is going to throw a punch, he's, like, scraping his knuckles on the ceiling or, like, hitting his head somewhere. And, I mean, they just destroy this thing. It's like, it's like they go full Citizen Kane on this room. And I really think that this is another example that proves that no matter what kind of comedy you like, this movie has something for you. Whether you like physical comedy, whether you like you know smart comedy, whether you just like really like messed up stuff happening in a comedic setting, this sort of touches all the bases. Yeah, yeah, it definitely covers all the bases. And I mean, it just again, like, I just it just goes to show like what good filmmakers the Coens are. I mean, just from page to screen to keep something like this going for 90 minutes and you know never lets up every scene almost every shot like has something in it every scene is definitely packed and packed with jokes and references and and something going on i mean the whole movie is just like stuffed with stuff to watch look at listen to and admire it's a movie that i wish was longer because it's so perfect and because every scene is so but there's no there's no fat on this movie everything is right where it's meant to be but then you you wonder if you, if if it was longer it probably couldn't keep up this quality just because it's so good and so on point so okay yeah so um so they tie up cage they they take the baby and they have a plan to not only ransom the baby but they're gonna go rob a bank too then they'll be set for life nobody in this movie really has good ideas well no one can see past one step you know like 
everyone thinks like a plan ends when you, I don't know, like immediately, you know, <laughs> like step one, get my thing. Okay, end of plan. Like there is no step two through four or anything. There's no looking down the line. Everyone is just looking right in front of them. It's very, I mean, I think it, it's what makes everybody seem so stupid and it definitely, you know, adds to the, to the funny. It seems like everybody's plan is just the first thing they think of. Hey, I want a baby. Oh, look, they have five babies. Let's go take one of those babies. Or, hey, now we have this baby. We need to get away. We need money. Where, where can we get money? Oh, the bank has money. Let's just go rob the bank. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no, like, weighing the pros and cons. There's no stopping to think about whether or not something else is a better idea. They just go and things. It might be part of the theme where people don't deal with their consequences, right? They do stuff and they don't see what the consequences will be. And if they do, they won't deal with the responsibility of the consequences. So, you know, you got someone like Hai who's always, you know, dealing with getting arrested and like now he's a father, so he has to deal with that, but he doesn't know how to make an honest living. I don't know. I just feel like that might tie in thematically. I don't think there's anything in this movie that doesn't fit. Like I think everything feels like it it it, it connects to other things in this movie. Like the Coen brothers are too good at making movies to sort of have these kind of these sorts of things accidentally come up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily we've taken the time to to analyze through lines or things in other Cage Club movies, but I think some of them might be happy accidents. Some things might be just us reading into them. It just comes back to how well this movie's made that everything happens for a reason. Everything is on screen for a reason. The story is told and beat by beat. It all makes sense and all sort of ties back in to tell the the one story that they want to tell. So now that uh, Nathan Jr. has been re-kidnapped or double kidnapped <laughs> kidnapped again it's like time to go get nathan jr back and that is a great speech right there i know you're worried honey but believe me there ain't a thing to be worried about we're absolutely going to get him back there just ain't no question about that we'll get him back that's just all there is to it and you want to know another thing i'm going to be a better person from here on out that's final that's absolutely the way it's going to be that's official you were right i was wrong a blind man could tell you that now they ain't going to hurt him honey they're just in it for the score but i ain't like that no more i'm a, I'm a changed man you were right i was wrong we got family here i'm gonna start acting responsibly so let's go honey let's go get nathan jr but but they're not the only ones i mean there's there's now two competing groups vying to get back nathan jr and sort of a race against each other and a race against the clock because at some point sooner or later and sooner probably rather than later the snotes brothers are going to do something stupid and either lose the baby or get the baby hurt or something's going to happen and they, they're all sort of racing against the clock and each other to, to see who can get the baby back first. Yeah, and if it wasn't bad enough, the vision that Hai had, the dream that he had, sort of came true. And the biker from hell arrives at Nathan Sr.'s work to offer his services of getting the baby back as well. So now like he's out there, the baby bounty hunter going after the kid as well. And Nathan Sr. at first thinks that this, and I think sort of rightfully so, that this bounty hunter might have been the one who took the baby in the first place. Mm-hmm. The criminal always returns to the scene of the crime, as they say, but he didn't take the baby. We know who took the baby. He just wants to go, and he has like these like supernatural abilities to find where the baby is or clues to lead to the baby. Like He stops at the one gas station and sees the pomade that the Snotes brothers used, and that's sort of all he needs in terms of tracking to go find where these dum-dums are with the baby. Yeah, I think he even mentions he's part animal, right? Some people call me part <laughs> bloodhound, you know? So, you know, even himself, maybe he was a creature of the island of Dr. Barreau at some point because he definitely looks like a cross between, like, a human and an animal. Everything converges into one. Just such a well-made movie that all these things are rocketing toward the same point. You really almost don't know how it's going to wind up. Yeah, everything kind of comes to a head at the bank. After the two guys rob the bank, they forget the baby there. <laughs> they well, leave. first they rob the convenience store. Yeah, and they leave the and baby there. They leave the baby there. And then they realize that they don't have the baby and they go back and they pick up the baby, and then they rob the bank, and they leave the baby there. They sort of have the paint bomb that goes off in their car, and so 
they they kind of they're pretty much out of the picture at that point and hi and ed go back and see the baby on the road and they're like oh there's the baby okay and on the horizon there's like a bomb goes off like a huge <laughs> explosion and like from out of the explosion comes leonard like the crazy biker from from hell it's, it's really the final big confrontation of the movie it's the people that you want to, but really rightfully shouldn't have the baby, against the guy that you in no way want to have the baby, but I guess sort of in reality he should? I mean, if he is true to his word and he is going to return to the Arizonas, in terms of morality, you should be rooting for him to win, but he's just, he is basically Satan himself, and there's no way you can root for him. Yeah, he seems like evil incarnate, and he's set up uh, earlier to us at least. Like by this point, I think we're pretty much behind Ed and High, and you know we're we're rooting for them. And he's been set up as this force of evil that can't be trusted. So I think at this point, when we see him and he's fighting and he's like being really brutal, and it's like, all right, like even though you're right, even though he's like sent there for the kid, like he can't get the kid. Just I don't know. It just wouldn't be right. He's not doing himself any favors in terms of audience approval because he's riding his motorcycle through the bank. He's just shooting guns wherever he wants. <laughs> he's blowing things up. He is on point, true to character from start to finish in this movie. And the finish is coming sooner rather than later for him. They set up the fact that he uses grenades, you know, to blow up rabbits and just like the most minor of of creatures and everything like that. And during the final fight between him and High, where he's like beating the crap out of him and like kind and of Cage Cage takes a beating in this movie oh. between between his final confrontation between him and Leonard and between really sort of Ed smacking him around whenever he does something stupid and the fight in the trailer. Pretty much everybody in this movie sticks it to, to high. Like he, he just takes a beating from all sides. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it is supposed to mean just represent life beating him down once you know, yeah. everywhere that he turns. You know, life just like slaps him in the face. Like you turn left and his wife slaps him. You turn right and like this stranger just slaps <laughs> exactly. Luckily, he gets one punch out when he punches Glenn, but you know it cost him a lot. It cost him. A lot. It's it's not it's not a fair fight in this movie. It's very much him against the world, and he gets one punch off. And that punch, like you just said, it it, it costs him his job. It's like the worst punch he could have thrown. Yeah, I mean, I'm su- I'm also surprised here at the end that he even survives this battle because of the way that Leonard's been set up. I mean, he drove past a flower at one point, and the flower just caught on fire. <laughs> so at this, and and High shoots him in the hand, and his and the wound bleeds fire. Like that was amazing to me too. You know, like this guy is definitely supernatural. I was expecting you know a quicker battle here at the end. I don't know if it was luck. I don't know if he knew what happened necessarily. But I'd like to get your take on it. He's like being bear hugged. By yeah, I don't. I don't know. Maybe he's just grabbing for things. Yeah. But the way that he sort of shows off what he did, and what he did is he pulls the pins from a couple grenades that are still attached to Leonard's vest, and then Leonard, this beacon of manliness and power and unstoppable force, is thrown into more of a panic than we've seen anybody <laughs> else in this movie. Yeah. Like he he can't drop his shotguns. He can't do anything to defuse pun intended maybe defuse the situation he's he's hopeless against this one this one move high is not set up to be this criminal mastermind this fighting expert because he loses every fight he's in pretty much unless he's the one sucker punching someone but the way that he shows leonard the proof of what he did makes me think he had at least some kind of inkling that this is a way that he was going to be able to get out of this fight. Yeah, because Leonard sort of doesn't realize what happened, and he like pulls a shotgun at High, and High just puts his hands up to block the gunshot, and you see the little ring dangling from his finger, and then he says, I'm sorry. He, says, <laughs> he just like whispers it, and that's when Leonard is just like, oh, nah, and he like can't get any, he can't do anything, and he, he explodes. He explodes in a very big way. And his boot lands, and then the baby boots land right after that it's so nice it's such a nice little it's so beautiful i don't know if it's you know a culmination of things or if it's just this was like like one straw too many or if they just had a change of heart but it's it's very clear that like it's not meant for the mcdonald's to have this baby yeah destiny is not on their side i mean they should probably return the kid and um, call it a day at this point. And that's what they do. When they bring the baby back, 
the Arizona's house, and they sneak in through the same window, and they drop the baby off. And then Nathan Arizona walks in, again, just sort of proving that everybody in this world is some kind of dumb, doesn't put two and two together that these people that just snuck into his baby's bedroom could have been the ones that stole the baby. Yeah, and they end up telling him. Cage is like, I took it. Um, and then Holly Hunter's like, oh, we both took it and all that. And he decides not to press charges and partially because they don't want any reward i'm thinking but also because you know i think he even says like they're good people you know and he gives them the advice that you just got to keep trying you know and one day it'll happen and whether or not it actually does happen is left open to interpretation and i was sort of getting a little bit of flashbacks from our discussion about peggy sue and about whether or not that whole movie was a dream but at the end of this movie nicholas cage has another dream where he sees a future where he and ed are growing old together it's it's sort of through all this that like it seems like their relationship is like sort of on the outs like it doesn't seem like ed wants to stay with high very much longer yeah it seems that this experience really wore him down and you know they're really doubting their abilities to raise a kid now and you know i think that's what a lot of first time parents go through you know and it's sort of at this point where okay we have the kid we went through our first crisis and it's like well, you know, if only we could return the kid back to the hospital or something like it's a wish fulfillment type of thing or something like that. And then they're like, yeah, maybe we won't even stay together at this point. Like if we can't raise a kid or keep a kid safe, like how good are we for each other? I've been turned into a criminal, like two criminals, you know, shouldn't be together. I mean, it's it's pretty touching. But yeah, I mean, you wonder what's going to happen. You know, are they going to stay together? And he has one last dream of what might transpire. That night I had a dream. I dreamt I was as light as the ether. A floating spirit visiting things to come. The shades and shadows of the people in my life wrestled their way into my slumber. I dreamt that Gail Neville had decided to return to prison. Probably that's just as well. I don't mean to sound superior and they're a swell couple guys, but maybe they weren't ready yet to come out into the world. And then I dreamed on, into the future, to a Christmas morn in the Arizona home, where Nathan Jr. was opening a present from a kindly couple who preferred to remain unknown. I saw Glenn a few years later, still having no luck getting the cops to listen to his wild tales about me and Ed. Maybe he threw in one Polak joke too many. I don't know. And still I dreamed on, further into the future than I'd ever dreamed before. Watching Nathan Jr.'s progress from afar, taking pride in his accomplishments as if he were our own wondering if he ever thought of us and hoping that maybe we'd broaden his horizons a little even if he couldn't remember just how they got broadened but still I hadn't dreamt nothing about me and Ed until the end and this was cloudier because it was years, years away. But I saw an old couple being visited by their children and all their grandchildren too. The old couple wasn't screwed up and neither were their kids or their grandkids. Dad. And I don't know. You tell me this whole dream. Was it wishful thinking? Was I just fleeing reality like I know I'm liable to do? But me and Ed, we can be good too. And it seemed real. It seemed like us. And it seemed like, well, our home. If not Arizona, then a land not too far away. 
where all parents are strong and wise and capable, and all children are happy and beloved. I don't know. Maybe it was Utah. And he, he dreams a future where he and Ed grow old together and have multiple generations. They have kids and their kids have kids. And it's clear that they, at least in this dream, resolve their differences and then probably went through the actual adoption process and got kids of their own and their kids grew up and had kids of their own. And whether or not it actually happens is left open to you. Of course, I like to think that they, they wind up together. I mean, they're, they're sort of meant for each other. I mean, opposites attract. <laughs> what can be more opposite than a criminal and a correctional <laughs> officer? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I just think this was supposed to represent one of their trials, you know, the trials of starting a family, you know, and, and joining that club. And it's such a drastic lifestyle change. You might even say that all this that happened is just like... A byproduct of stress and you know postpartum depression and all that kind of stuff just just being visualized and actualized and, and acted out and it's like a real bittersweet but also hopeful ending and for the second movie in a row it ends with cage in elderly makeup and we had we had talked about how he hadn't played any other role sort of outside of his age group and it's two movies in a row where he plays uh, an older man so it's just sort of weird that the cage connections just keep on rolling in in all fairness we only see the back of him but it's clearly cage there's a couple other cage connections aside from you know the elderly makeup he never works with the coen brothers again he never works with holly hunter again in in a sad sort of downer kind of ending to this episode trey wilson who plays nathan arizona dies within a couple years after this movie comes out he dies in 1989 what are you talking about Really? Trey Wilson, he died of a cerebral hemorrhage two oh years goodness. after this movie came out. But in terms of other cage connections, John Goodman will come back in Bringing Out the Dead, and William Forsythe will come back in The Rock. So oh. both the Snotes brothers Excellent. will return in a future cage movie, but nobody else, it seems like, will be back on the cage tree in the cage club. Oh, well. But yeah, so that's pretty much Raising Arizona. We, it, it was sort of a different kind of episode, but I think, it, I think we did it justice because we just sort of, the movies that we do know more about we're going to take a different approach to it because we don't need to go through it like like nobody's ever heard of birdie so we sort of have to do our due diligence and and go through it beat by beat but a movie like raising arizona that most people have heard of most people have seen that everybody should see it's it's worth talking about but also leaving a little bit to the imagination so that you can all experience and enjoy this movie this wonderful wonderful movie firsthand yes go watch it right now well you should watch it and then listen to the episode and then watch it again so if you if you want even more of this, whatever this is, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews for every movie. You can find all the podcasts there. You can figure out how to follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can rate and review us on iTunes. It's really the hub for all things Cage Club, and that's cageclub.me. Next episode, we have Moonstruck. It's Cage and Cher in the duo that history has been begging for. <laughs> all right. And, and, then... and then Vampire's Kiss. All right. Stay tuned for a couple really good movies and hopefully really good episodes coming up in the very near future so i'm joey lewandowski i'm mike manzi and we hope you will join us next time on cage club (laughs) 